it seems about as, as good a time as any to ask, um, are there any list people in the house? Any people who love to, to make lists, keep lists, check things off of lists? Um, those of you who know me know that I'm partial to a good list, partly because my brain is not a great place to keep things, uh, but partially because I'm intrigued by the variety of things that lists can be used for. And so Wednesday this week, I found myself on the internet reading an article with a list of the ways that lists can be used. Um, here's, here's what I found. Uh, there's a lot of different types of lists. There's grocery lists. There's task lists. There's expense lists. There's lists of directions that will get you turn by turn to your house. Anybody remember MapQuest? Few of us, few of us over 27. Uh, a business that I worked for a number of years ago had lots of heavy machinery and they kept hundreds of different parts lists around the shop. Kids who are writing letters at this time of year are very concerned about a couple different types of lists. There are all kinds of strange lists is the moral of the story. Um, but I realized as I was thinking about it this week that by far the strangest type of list that we can come across is somebody else's list. I was um, a few years ago in the middle of the pandemic, you know, the first few weeks that we couldn't gather together in this space, several of us on staff were trained how to clean the pews. And you'd be surprised what you can find in pews. And so I found wedged deep into the cushion of one of the pews, something that I later came to regard as a to-do list. And so I did what any of us would do. And I took it home and I read it and I kept it all these years. And here's what it said. Schedule oil change, order grocery pickup, tell John's mother what he said to me last week. I don't know who this belongs to, but I do know who's glad it's lost. There's just um, something uncomfortable that makes you queasy, that's slightly wrong about coming uh, across somebody else's list. Uh, because, you know, you're very sure that that list means something to them. But unless you know the person, unless you know why they made the list, unless you know the context, you're just as sure that it means nothing to you. And so when you come across somebody else's list, most of us have come to the conclusion that the best thing to do is to disregard it and feel free to pay no attention. And isn't that how you feel about the list passages in the scripture? This church, probably okay to be honest. Uh, usually when I uh, run across a list of names in the Bible, I approach it like somebody else has dropped their list of names in my book. I'm sure that there's use for the list for some people. I'm sure that the person who wrote the list thought it was deep and meaningful, and I'm sure that there must be a reason it's here. But when I read the Bible looking for my heart to go pitter-patter, there has never been a time where I've thought to myself, I'm gonna turn to Luke 3. More often, uh, I've... Uh, skipped it. Uh, my eyes have glazed over and I come to the end of the paragraphs, not sure what I've read, uh, or I've thought to myself, if I were ever to write a book uh, and I want to kill the momentum of a story, I would be hard pressed to find a better way to do that than to drop a list in the middle of the action. And yet that's what happens in Luke chapter three. Some of you know the Christmas story, and we've just come off of that. We've just come across the story of Jesus being born. The decree has gone out from Caesar Augustus. Mary and Joseph have taken off from their backwater town of Nazareth for Bethlehem. 
there weren't, wasn't any room at the inn. The time comes for the baby to be born. They laid him in a manger. An angel appeared to the shepherds and came to visit. The shepherds came to visit the baby Jesus. Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple to be blessed. Jesus grows up in knowledge, the scripture says, in stature and in favor with God and with men. He's baptized. The heavens open. The Holy Spirit comes descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. End scene. And then the next scene we pick up with is Jesus was supposed to be the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of... At which point the story is dead because the lists have arrived. Unless... Unless the, 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 the list is somehow central to the story. Unless there's something that the authors are trying to draw our attention to by putting this list smack dab at the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry. Unless the genealogy itself is a story that helps us make sense of Jesus. Maybe, just maybe, if that's why the list is there, it's a list I could get interested in. And so I started to do some reading and became um, bored and called a friend of mine who's an Old Testament and New Testament scholar, one of my favorite friends who has uh, brain power around the Old and New Testament. And he helped me see that the genealogies in Matthew and Luke are completely different. Some people say that this is because of their audience. Matthew's audience was primarily Jewish, some say, while Luke's was more global. Some say this is because of the different lineages, like one list is Mary's list and one list is Joseph's list. But most of all, it seems like the differences in the genealogy are there to help us capture with more texture what Jesus's earthly ministry is really about. Matthew's genealogy traces through royals and deliverers, people who show up sort of at just the right time when God's people are on the brink of destruction and changes the course of history. So there's Rahab on the list, who is a prostitute who rescued God's people from being found while they were taking the promised land. Abraham's on the list. Abraham's nephew, Lot, is captured and Abraham goes and rescues him. Hezekiah's on the list. He defeated the Philistines and led God's people toward renewal in worship and living holy lives. Solomon's on the list. A king known for wisdom who built the temple and presided over a united Israel at the height of their power. And so if you read the list in Matthew... The list prepares the hearers to know that Jesus is a king or a deliverer who will build on the legacy that came before him of people who showed up at just the right time to deliver God's people into a new way of living. But today we're in Luke. And instead of uh, tracing Jesus's lineage through the royal history of Israel, the only king in, gene in, in Luke's genealogy is David. Um, instead, the rest of the people on Luke's genealogy are just ordinary folks, shepherds, administrators, middle management, people who are servants, who instead of seeing power as something to be taken for their own gain, humbly show up in the life of God's people again and again. We have Zerubbabel, which is fun to say. He's a governor who administered a rebuilding project. We have Jesse, who's a faithful shepherd who raised a future king. And we have Nahum, who prophesies the downfall of violent empires and affirms 
that God's commitment is to justice. We have one king and otherwise just a group of ordinary people who instead of seeking power for themselves, sought to give their lives away for people others overlooked. And so you realize if you start to read these two genealogies that this isn't placed here as we so often assume as a way to interrupt a story that's otherwise full of action. The genealogy isn't here, is here to help us understand what kind of God this is who comes and dwells among us. The list is not an interruption to the story. Make no mistake, the list is the story. And the genealogies are actually in many ways the perfect backdrop to what's going on when Jesus is born. Jesus arrives on the scene under the reign of Caesar Augustus. And this man is obsessed with his own power. So he's, um, he's a general, he's a conqueror, and he comes back full of confidence in his military exploits. But he's so obsessed with people worshiping him that he actually holds a contest, imagine this, where people compete to come up with the best idea to bring glory to his name. Herod was installed under him as a puppet king because he had been really good at bringing glory to Caesar's name. He built temples to Caesar and was obsessed with gaining power for himself. Quirinius, who's the governor, had established devotion to Caesar in his mission. The reason he was installed was that he was thought to be able to make good Roman citizens of the people of God. So what we have here in Israel is a culture under the oppression of another culture that's bent on its own glory. What we have here is the people of God looking for a deliverer who can topple a culture obsessed with its own power. And so the people of God were convinced that the Messiah would be a king or a military leader who was strong enough to resist the powers of Rome. They were looking for a Messiah who would be a conqueror. They were looking um, for someone pre-assembled who uh, had leadership skills that would overwhelm the people with force. They were looking for God's chosen one to arrive uh, like a shout in the broad daylight at the center of the institutions of power in their culture. In other words, uh, they were obsessed with greatness too. The only difference was who they wanted to be great. The Romans called Caesar their savior and wanted the Romans to be great. And the Jews uh, were looking for the Messiah and wanted the Jews to be great. Both were looking for a powerful savior to make their people great, to do something obvious and culturally revolutionary that was at the center of power and couldn't be overlooked. Aren't you looking for that kind of savior sometimes at least? If I can um, pause the sermon for a moment, I'll say that over the past several years, I've heard people um, throw around the word um, revival. And sometimes what people mean when they say revival is an obvious outpouring of the Holy Spirit that shapes the lives of hundreds or thousands or maybe millions. And other times when people say the word revival, they mean uh, a second wind, sort of a shot in the arm for Christians that are going about their life without a ton of excitement for the things of God. Other times when people say the word revival, they mean that they want their life to feel spiritual. They want a feeling of strong satisfaction when they do the right thing, or if not, at least for the hair to stand up on their arms in worship services. And hear me, God's capable of doing all those things and he has. But those of us who look 
only for a savior to arrive like a shout in the town square will be surprised when we read through scripture and find that God's best way of bringing life was an announcement to shepherds in the field. This was the greatest revelation of God maybe since Elijah saw a vision of armies in heaven, but it was barely audible one town over. If you and I are only willing to receive new life in ways that are obvious to everyone, we'll end up reaching for a vision of the Christian life that has very little to do with the life of Jesus. Because Jesus's way of bringing life was sometimes obvious and powerful, but usually only to people who were lowly and out of the way. One of the most um, notable and frankly troubling things about the way that Jesus arrives is how deniable it is. Credible people didn't see it, which sounds to me like a failure of planning. Uh, shepherds' testimonies at the time were inadmissible in court because the law said that shepherds were worse than thieves and liars. The religious um, upstanding people tried to interact with shepherds as little as possible, but they still had to interact with them at least one time a year when the shepherds would provide, wait for it, an unblemished lamb for Passover, separated for all the others, which was to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. And in this ritual, after the priests and the shepherds confirmed that the sacrifice was unblemished, the priest would say, glory to God in the highest. And the lamb would be carried to the elders and blessed just as Jesus was with Simeon and Anna in the temple. Do you see it? These are untrustworthy people. These are dirty people. And yet they're the first ones to comprehend the message because they were the only ones other than the priests who would know that in this child, God had indeed provided a lamb that could take away the sin of the people. I've read through this text over and over again every Christmas, missing the significance of the swaddling clothes and of the angel's message because I had no idea how intentional God was with offering the shepherds a sign that only they would recognize. To the rest of us, ordinary enough that we pass it over every advent, but to them, exactly what they needed to locate this baby as the very son of God. I've actually overlooked this because I missed the genealogy, which would have clued me in to the idea that this way of showing up to ordinary people that others overlook is exactly what somebody in Jesus's family tree would do. I've tried to draw a line over the past um, few weeks uh, of uh, through Jesus's genealogy and understand just a little bit more about the kind of people they were. And there are tons of, of different traits that more scholarly people than I could share with you about Jesus's family tree. But there are three key traits that seem to bind all of these together more than the rest. The first is that they pay attention to those that others forget. Uh, there's a couple in Jesus's genealogy named Ruth and Boaz. Ruth um, shows up near Boaz's farm as a poor widow and she's uh, what the Old Testament calls a gleaner who picks up the leftover grain after the harvesters have moved through. And so Boaz sees her working in the field and goes and speaks to this widow and assures her that she'll be provided for in his fields. And then behind her back, he goes and tells his harvesters, be a little bit worse at your job. 
leave a little bit more in the field so that Ruth will have more to gather for her family. Boaz didn't have to do this. He was well within his rights uh, to send her away as not his problem. But instead he saw that his life and his budget were tools for loving his neighbors. And in the process became part of a family line through which all generations have been blessed. God still has a way of being with those who know that God turns his face most especially toward those that others turn away from. God still today has a way of being with those who know that God turns his face most especially toward those that others turn their face away from. The second characteristic that unites the family of God is that they're a group of people who do what's right even when it doesn't feel spiritual. There's a guy in Jesus's family tree named Zerubbabel, still fun to say, who while he was in exile um, was moved by the fact that the temple was in ruins and was granted permission uh, to go and rebuild it because somebody needed to. But as he was building, he faced all kinds of construction problems. And then the people got discouraged because they were building a new temple on the site of the old temple. And the old temple looked a lot better than the new temple. And so the people are grumbling, wondering, what in the world can God do with this new temple that seems like not enough? And so God speaks to the people through the prophets and says, don't despise the day of small things. The glory of this house will be greater than the glory of the former house, not because of the building materials, not because of the architecture, but because I will fill this place that seems like not enough with my presence until it's more than enough. Church, God still has a way of redeeming the world through people who in the face of discouragement and adversity, when their life feels like not enough, continue to press on to do the next loving thing. The third characteristic of Jesus's family tree is that they build their lives around serving. Uh, You can see this alive in Joseph. Many of us are familiar with the story of Joseph enough to know that when Mary came to him and said, I'm going to have a baby that's conceived by the Holy Spirit, um, he's confronted with a pretty important set of choices. The first is whether or not he's going to believe her. And the second is, either way, is he going to stay married to her? Uh, He could have done what most people would do and what many of us would probably do and gotten on the phone and called people around and said, what do you think I should do about Mary? I'm not sure what I should do about Mary. He could have gone to the coffee shop and had coffee with people and said, Mary's come and told me this and I'm not quite sure what to do and ask other people's opinion. He didn't do that. Maybe Joseph had a relative Uh, very sincere and religious, uh, who said, just do what the Bible says. Can't go wrong if you do what the Bible says. Most of us who have been in church for any length of time have had that kind of relative, a relative who tries to point us to the scripture as something to look at, to get clear, simple guidance for life. So let me tell you what the Bible says Joseph should have done from Deuteronomy 22. She's to be taken out and stoned to death in front of the people. That's what the Bible says. So what's Joseph to do? Uh, Joseph knows his Bible. 
Joseph loves his Bible. And at the same time, he turns to Mary and says, I will not abandon you. I will not humiliate you. I will not shame you. I will protect you. I will serve you. I will commit to you with all that I have to see the promise come from just a promise to fruition. What scripture do you have for that, Joseph? Where's that written? It's written in the heart of God. Joseph knew that the Bible isn't just something to be looked at for clear instruction for life. The Bible is always something to be looked through to see the face of God. One of my favorite uh, preaching mentors likes to say that Joseph is the first person in the New Testament who knows how to read the Bible correctly. We need more of them. God still has a way of loving the world, church, through people who read the scripture and read their lives as chances to more fully embrace the character of God, which is always to serve. Uh, These are the kind of people that are on Jesus's family tree, uh, portraits, if you will, snapshots of what we're supposed to be looking like when God's work is on the scene. Matthew's genealogy depicts Jesus as king. Luke's depicts Jesus as the son of God who cares for those who are struggling, even in the face of persecution, and does the most loving thing. But the beauty of Jesus's life is that both genealogies are right. Luke's right. Jesus is the latest in a long line of servants and activists and prophets aligning his life toward the good of the people that others often overlook. And Matthew's right. Jesus is a deliverer and a king, just not the type of king that most of us are calibrated to look for. This is a Messiah who channels his power not to open the door to his own military ambition or chest-thumping greatness, but to open the door through which you and I can walk to become ourselves the family of God. These lists are included in the Bible, not as a boring interlude to an interesting story, but to help us understand what, it, what kind of work God's about and help us know how we, filled by the Spirit, can live a life worthy of the family name of Jesus Christ. In other words, when we read the lips, lists in Scripture, these are not somebody else's list. This is our list. Not just a list of the spectacular or overwhelming branches of God's family tree, but the the slow-growing roots and branches that we tend to miss because God's work uh, isn't best done by people who feel spiritual all the time. God's best work is done by people who are sifting through the rhythms of their own life, their everyday choices and habits, trying to say yes to Jesus's way instead of their own. Hadn't that been true for you? Haven't the best examples of God's love shown up in your life in ordinary ways? I remember um, visiting a chicken plant uh, years ago uh, when I worked uh, at a chicken company. And there was one Christian worker on the line, and I think his name was, was Reggie, who just lived faith incredibly well. He wasn't a plant manager. Uh, he didn't have any formal authority, but when something went down at the plant, people looked to Reggie for guidance. And during my time at the company, um, there was a manager who was systemically discriminating against a certain ethnic group of which Reggie was not a part, but Reggie saw it as his problem to address it. And so he went to work firmly, directly, 
gently confronting that manager until policies were changed and the manager was replaced. And somebody asked him a year later after all this had blown over and it was very unclear where Reggie's job fortunes would land. They said, why, given your reputation and your stature in this place, would you put your neck out for a group of people that you don't belong to? And he said, because people made in the image of God shouldn't have to work in a place that tells them they're worthless. One of the people um, who worked with Reggie at the time said, I don't always know about the God that I see some Christians believing in, but whatever he's having, I'll have. I talked to somebody last year who said, um, my parents were going through a messy divorce and there was abuse in my home. And just around the time it was at its very worst, my neighbor walked across the street and invited me to church and I said yes, just to get out of the house and because I thought that maybe there would be cute girls there. Uh, he said he and his parents would pick me up every Sunday and take me to church. And then uh, we'd get lunch together and play PlayStation until I had to go home for dinner. He said, because they walked across the street, I met Sunday school teachers that loved me. I met friends at that church that I still have to this day. That family every Christmas had gifts under their tree for me when my family didn't. He said, my neighbors didn't think they were doing anything special, bringing me to church. But when I looked in their eyes at nine years old, I knew somebody else loved me for the first time. And I knew that that love was a reflection of a God who loved me too. He said, it's 20 years later now, and I still haven't gotten over it. I still haven't gotten over it. Luke says that's the right response. Luke chapter two, verse 19 says that when Mary sees the shepherds arriving on the scene of Jesus's birth, when Mary sees God appearing to and through ordinary people in a way that only they could recognize, the scripture says that she, quote, pondered these things and treasured them in her heart, freshly amazed at what's possible when God puts people into our lives that we would never have chosen ourselves because they're on his list. And so this morning, as we've done the cumbersome task of exploring two lists of people, it seems only appropriate that I would ask you to do it again. I'm gonna ask you uh, to make two lists. Uh, the first is your list. It's a group of names, uh, not a genealogy exactly, but a names, names of a few people who have taught you by example what it means to live and love in the family of God who have in their own ordinary way, in a way barely audible one town over, have taught you what it means to live out the way of Jesus. The second list is just a bunch of names uh, whose list you're supposed to be on. Just a couple of names of people that you sense God calling you to disciple, to make an impact on, to be a loving example for in the ordinary places and spaces of your everyday life, serving them with your words and actions as the children of God. So there are special note cards uh, up here lining both sides of the altar and up on the front of the stage. And I'm gonna invite anyone this morning who feels willing to grab a card and make your list, remembering first the ways that God has used willing servants to bless your life and saying yes to being the kind of willing servant who can stand in another person's lifeline and love them as the children of God. 
after you have it made, I'm gonna encourage you to keep that list somewhere where you can see them every day. Your, your mirror, your bedside table, your Bible, your windshield, <laughs> hold onto it like it's the one thing that you would keep if there was a fire. Because if you forget your laptop and your bank account number and your car keys, hang on to your list. Because unlike most lists, this is not just a list, it's a story. It's not a to-do list, it's not a tax, tax list, <laughs> not a tax list, it's, it's not a parts list. It's not a turn-by-turn turn list of directions to get you to your house, but make no mistake, this list will get you home. Church, I'm gonna invite you this morning to make your lists.